So this week, we're continuing our series on the different spheres of life, or the spheres of culture. And this week, we're going to look at the subject of economics. Now, economics is a huge and complicated subject, but one which all of us probably can agree is important. Now, when it comes to money, Christians understand that we ought not to place ultimate value in money and jobs, etc., or make them our main goal in life, because we know that it's possible to lose everything in this world and yet still retain the most important thing it's possible to have, which is our relationship to God. However, understanding economics is important because it has a bearing on a number of areas of our lives. It affects the choices we make, it affects our ability to help others, and it can affect the amount of influence we might have in society. So the question facing us is not, at the outset, is economics important or not, but rather, is there a biblical and Christian perspective on economics that might lead to the development of an ideal kind of economy? Or is economics simply an area of life that is outside of God's concern? In other words, is economics a neutral sphere of life? Or is it an area of life that needs to be brought under the Lordship of Christ? So part of the problem for us is that the modern economy and financial system can seem so complicated, intimidating and hard to understand that most of us give up just before we start. And partly for this reason, economics has been called the dismal science. Another reason that people find it dismal is that although economics isn't really a science, it has sort of been made into a science and is treated as if it were a science which alienates many of us before we even, again, begin to try to understand it. But if we go back to the 18th century, when people were beginning to write about economics in earnest, economics was not called economics, it was called moral philosophy. And people understood that the subject and study of economics concerned the decisions people made in the marketplace, and that these decisions, like decisions in every other area of life, are moral decisions. And this makes economics more of a social science because it concerns human behaviour, which cannot really be reduced to facts or figures. Sciences and scientists use models and hypotheses, but in the end, human behaviour can never really be reduced to just models and formulae. So if economics is about the ethical decisions that people make with their money, or in their jobs, or in the marketplace, then this also means that it cannot be a neutral subject or sphere of activity. If people make decisions that can be good or bad, or right and wrong, then this means that the one who defines what right and wrong is, and good and bad are, that is to say God himself, definitely has something to say about economics, money, and economic activity in general. Another reason that economics is seen as dismal is that in the modern world, it, is, it tends to be closely bound up with politics and therefore with all the propaganda, insincerity and hypocrisy that goes with politics. Now, I need to be careful here because if I say that about politics, I'm not actually trying to denigrate politics or suggest that politics is not also a legitimate area of activity for Christians. Actually, it absolutely is. What I'm trying to say is I'm trying to make more of a comment on the state of modern politics and the way that many people these days feel about the political process and what politics has become. 
So, it's not surprising overall that many people find even the mention of the word economics dismal. But, and this is the good news for us today, this is not how God looks at things. We've all heard the statistics, the various statistics about how much Jesus talked about money. Um, the thing, the, the statistic that I came up with, just looking at this online briefly, was that around 16 out of the 38 parables that Jesus told concern money, or else, if they're not directly about money, they use financial analogies to make a point about God's kingdom. So money and the economy are important to God because they are an essential part of his creation and his will for us. So, if there's one thing that I'd like us to take away from this morning, it would be this. The idea that the economic sphere is a part of God's kingdom and is something to be developed to his glory. And again, I need to be really clear. If I say that, I'm not, so, I'm not talking about a, a sort of hyper-spiritual perspective that sees the only use or the only legitimate use of money or the only legitimate reason to have a well-paid job as being a way to fund evangelism or church planting or to build church buildings. No, I'm talking about the idea of economic growth in and of itself being something that pleases God and is part of his will for the world. So where do we begin in unpacking that? The starting point for economics, as for every academic discipline, is God's creation of the universe out of nothing. Now, in economic terms, we sometimes talk about fiat or fiat money. Fiat money, for those of you who have never heard that expression before, is money that has no backing. It has been created out of thin air. Modern money is fiat money. In the old days, money used to be gold and silver. The thing itself that was used as a medium of exchange was in and of itself valuable. But modern money is fiat money. In other words, it was created out of thin air, as I just said. The pound, for example, only has value because the government says it has value, and we are compelled by law to use it as a medium of exchange. Otherwise, it's just paper. Well, it used to be paper. Now it's just digits on our computers. But the point is, it is created by decree, and people only continue to use it because enough people have confidence in it. But God is the only one who can truly create anything by fiat. And actually, fiat is a theological term. In the beginning, there was nothing. And then God spoke and God said, let there be light. And there was light. So God's word has creative power. He has the power to create something out of nothing. And we call this creation by fiat. So, by his fiat word, God created everything that has been made. And this creative act means that God is sovereign and he's also the ultimate owner of everything. And in economics, this question of ownership is basic to everything that follows. It also means that there is no moral or ethically neutral area in the universe. There's no neutrality. The whole universe relates to God and its creator. And so if we try to carve out a little neutral spot to sit on where we don't have to listen to God or obey him, then actually we're rebelling against God. Now, that might sound a bit simplistic and it might sound a bit harsh and black and white, but it follows logically from God being the sovereign and owner of everything that he has made. So this is, this is something that we have to come to grips with 
um, as Christians, and especially when we think about the subject of economics. If God has created everything from nothing, and he, it also means that he owns it and he rules it. So as the ultimate owner and sovereign, God, after he created everything, he then delegated the responsibility of running the world to human beings. Now he's given us a great freedom to use what he has made, but we also have the responsibility and a duty of care to use it wisely. The forbidden tree in the midst of the garden was a reminder to Adam and Eve that God was still the ultimate owner. It was the one thing that reminded them that while they had freedom, they did not have complete freedom. The tree was a reminder that with the freedom was also accountability, that there was a higher ruler and a sovereign who would require an accounting for how things were used. So the tree was a sort of sign. Everything belonged to Adam and Eve, and yet there was this one small tree that was off limits. And this was to point them or just to remind them that of who made everything. So for us, when we're born and we enter the world, we actually receive an enormous, tremendous blessing just by the fact of being alive and being able to enjoy the world that God has made. But at the same time, we can never escape the fact that God made the world and he is the ultimate owner of it. Now, along with this creation of everything and the delegation of running it to the first humans and their descendants, there was also a command. So when God created Adam, he gave him the command to fill the whole earth with people and to rule over creation. And in chapter 2 of Genesis, this idea is developed in more detail. So Genesis 2 verse 5 says that while God had created the earth, the earth was not yet fruitful because there was no man to work the ground. So right away, the implication is that while God created a wonderful world, its growth potential would not be unleashed until humans were present and applying themselves to unleashing it. So then we see God creating the garden and putting Adam in it. And we see that there were good trees and other kinds of edible plants in the garden. And we are told that a river flowed out of the garden. And again, the description of the river conveys the sense of developmental potential. The river divided into four other rivers and presumably these flowed in different directions down from the mountain where the garden was into the world. One strategic role of the rivers might have been that they would provide access to other further away places in that first phase after the creation. So the implication is that people were to travel downstream into the world. There was to be a movement outwards from the centre. And all of that is implied in that description. Now in terms of this, we might see the Garden of Eden as an initial training ground for developing the whole world, like a nursery. Or another way of looking at it might be to say that the humans were to extend the, the boundaries of the garden progressively outwards until the garden covered the whole earth. But whichever way we look at it, I think it's fair to say that Genesis 2 conveys a strong sense that the creation was pregnant with developmental potential, but that humans were necessary to release that potential. And this increases the further we go on in the chapter. In verse 12, we are told that near one of the rivers, downstream, gold can be found, as well as other precious stones and valuable things. So here, at the very beginning of the Bible, we learn that there are physical resources in a raw form out there somewhere to be found and used. Now, some of these raw materials show up again at the end of the Bible, 
in Revelation chapter 21, which is the description of the New Jerusalem. The city itself appears to be made of gold, and there are precious stones in the walls and foundations of the city. So if we take these two bookends of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 21, we can see that there is a progression in human history. What begins in a garden, in the midst of a good but undeveloped world, ends as, as a glorious sort of highly complex and glorious garden city. Now, admittedly, very clearly, the link between Genesis and Revelation, as I've drawn attention to it, is probably figurative and symbolic. Nonetheless, whether it is symbolic or real, the point is made. God has placed resources in the original creation that are to be used and developed um, up to a final glorious point in the creation, if you like. And something similar crops up in Deuteronomy chapter 8 in relation to the Promised Land, where the children of Israel are just about to go across the River Jordan into the Promised Land. And God says to Moses, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. So what comes across strongly in the first two chapters of Genesis and repeated here in Deuteronomy is that Adam and Eve's original calling was to take the raw material that God had created and develop and improve on it. And an essential aspect of the creation is that God created a good world, but a, good, a world that could be improved and enhanced. And if I say that, that might trigger some of you to sort of think, wait a minute, how could what God made be improved upon? Well, this brings us to a very important point that we need to deal with. And this is the question of the degree to which the original creation was perfect, or the degree to which we should say or talk about the original creation as being perfect. So the word perfect is a word that we Christians often use when we talk about God's original creation. However, what I want to suggest today is that this is a mistake. And I think it's a mistake because describing it as perfect can then become a stumbling block, preventing us from grasping fully the extent to which God wants to redeem the creation and the physical world this side of Jesus's return especially when we talk in terms of seeking to make things down here more like things up there where God is. So firstly, God didn't actually say that the creation was perfect. He said, more pointedly, that it was good. And when he had finished on the last day and everything was done, he said it was very good. Secondly, it also wasn't perfect because actually it contained the possibility of evil and rebellion somewhere in there in the garden was the serpent and God had also given Adam and Eve the capacity and freedom to rebel against him. Thirdly, something that is perfect is essentially static. It isn't going anywhere because it has reached perfection. We could say that it's stopped. Now, if any of you have seen the first Shrek movie, you will know what I mean. So if you've seen that movie, you'll remember that Lord Farquaad, um, the little king, uh, he, his city was called Duloc, and what he really wanted, uh, the goal, his goal for his city was that it would be perfect. 
Um, and as we see in the film, you know, it's very funny. The result of this pursuit of perfection was that the city was essentially lifeless. Now, God's kingdom, in contrast to Duloc, is dynamic. It is always moving and growing. And it is going to be moving and growing for all of eternity because growth and development are characteristics of God's kingdom. Now, this is also why the, 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 the tabernacle, as a metaphor, reappears in the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, 22, we are told pointedly that there is no temple in the new city. But at the same time, earlier in the same chapter in verse 3, we are told that God will tabernacle with his people, which means that there will be movement, just as the original tabernacle travelled around the desert and was as a kind of mobile temple, as a mobile presence of God with the people. So we're promised at the end of the Bible that in the future, um, the next phase of God's kingdom um, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be movement and dynamism. It's not going to be a static, perfect place that has stopped and ceased to grow. Another way of looking at this might be to say, you know, especially for those of us that have been in charismatic churches, how often does God say prophetically, go on, sing me one of my old favourite songs? He doesn't say that. Um, and if we look at we look elsewhere in Revelation, it says that the multitude, in two places actually, in Revelation, in chapter 5 and chapter 14, it says that the multitude who are gathered before the throne of the Lamb, they sing a new song. So God's kingdom is always growing, developing, and God is always doing a new thing. And so it is important for us to understand that this room for growth and improvement and new things is in a very deep way the foundation for economic activity as much as it is anything else. Now, what I'm saying about this can't be limited to economics, but at the same time, it can't be excluded or spiritualized away either. God's kingdom involves concrete growth in time and in history. And finally, when we talk about perfection, we are basically talking about something that is unattainable. And I think this is how we Christians might be guilty of using the word. When we, when we talk about something as perfect, we're essentially saying it can't be achieved and therefore we shouldn't even try to achieve it. And if we apply that to salvation, if we don't believe that everyone's going to be saved, um, which of course we don't believe that, I believe the Bible does speak of a comprehensive healing and restoration of all things, and that the creation as God made it, even though it has fallen with us and been spoilt, is going to undergo a radical renewal and positive transformation in the future. And I don't just mean after Jesus comes back, I mean before Jesus comes back. So if we go back to Adam for a moment, we see that God put him in the garden to work it and to begin the epic task of developing the world. Now the very next thing that happens is that God creates Eve. And this, this is momentous, it marks the beginning of the family and it marks the union of a man and a woman in marriage. Um, in that regard it mirrors the relationship between Christ and the church. And there are literally hundreds of things we could talk about with respect to marriage and the family. However, in economic terms, we can also see Eve's creation as God initiating a division of labour. So Adam Smith, in the 18th century, um, a very famous economist, identified the division of labour as the root of increased productivity. He observed workers who made pins. And when the workers had to make a whole pin, a whole pin at a time, they worked more slowly than if they made just one part of the pin, 
or they fulfilled one process in the manufacture of the pin. Now, for them, it made the work less interesting and fulfilling. However, more pins could be made. Now, admittedly, this is a simplistic example, and it does refer us back to the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution, when conditions were often grim. But the point is that dividing a task into smaller and more specialised tasks often allows the work to be done more effectively. We could also talk about Henry Ford, how he um, he applied the same principle to um, early car manufacturer, uh, and he he was able to actually shorten the shifts from 12 to 8 hours that the men worked in the factory and he was able to offer more pay. Um, it's the same thing. And today, mature economies are marked by an ever-increasing division of labour as more and more people are able to focus in on specialist areas of work and production. And this is also incidentally why a shrinking population is disastrous for an economy. Now, this idea of an ever-increasing division of labour and an increase in specialisation also fits with the way that God has made us as individuals. Each one of us is a completely unique individual with completely unique gifts, personality and abilities. So in a world in which the Kingdom of God is growing and the knowledge of God is increasing and bearing fruit, we would expect to see people doing work that was more and more specific to them and their gifts and personalities and, in turn, we would expect to see an ever-increasing tide of blessing and prosperity. So, to, to give you a contrast to this, in the, in the distant past, everyone had to farm. There was little variation, whether you liked farming or not, whether you were good at it or not, there was no alternative other than to starve. But the modern industrial economy, for the first time in history, has allowed people to begin specialising at a much higher rate than before. And if I say that, it's not to gloss over all the problems that came with industrialization. you know, the oppression of workers, the dangerous conditions that people had to work in, exploitation of children, all of that. I'm not, uh, I'm not um, setting that aside or, or trying to downplay that. We've actually come a long way in terms of wealth and productivity since Adam Smith's time as well as a long way in terms of better working conditions and pay. But if we take the perspective that God is always calling us forward to growth and improvement, we, as Christians, we can be optimistic about the future of economic growth. And the same goes for issues such as pollution and environmental damage. We can be optimistic that these problems will be increasingly solved. So in creating Eve, God, having given Adam a job to do, was increasing their potential to specialise and thus become more productive. Without getting in the into the debate about the roles or complementarity of men and women, there would have been things that Adam was able to do and interested in doing, and there would have been other things that Eve was more interested in doing and able to do. But together, whatever tasks they did, as a unit, they became more productive. And the more they multiplied, the more this specialisation would increase and diversify. And uh, if you think about it, in the, you know, I think it's in Genesis chapter 4 where you get the descendants of Cain multiplying. Actually, what is described is their function. Some of them made musical instruments, some of them made metal objects, um, others were herding animals. And there's this sense that as the population grew, specialization increased. And then going back to marriage for a second, if we do see this as one aspect of marriage, the division of labor, 
then it can also help us to see and value singleness in a fresh way as well. Not everyone needs to get married to do what God has called them to do. And for some people, they can do what God has called them to do better by being single. Or there can be things that God has called some people to do that they can only do if they don't get married. And it is interesting that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's discussion of singleness refers to the gift that each one of us has. For some, the gift involves them being married, and for others, it involves them being single. The point is that God and God's calling are paramount. Personally, I used to get very tired of hearing people talk about the gift of singleness when I was single, as this was usually a highly spiritualized concept of singleness that I was unable to relate to or understand in any way. But I think it's easier to understand if we think about these things in economic terms, in terms of the division of labor. I was single for a long time, um, but there came a point when I could not continue in my calling unless I married. And I don't mean in the sense that emotionally I couldn't go on. I mean, I, what I actually mean is that I was not actually able to do what I had to do unless I had help. And again, that's not to reduce um, Verena's, uh, Verena to like her practical skills, which she has loads of. It's more complicated than that, and it's, it's actually way more glorious. So what I'm trying to say is that whether you're married or not, this cooperation and collaboration between people is a very deep root of economic productivity. And it is this way because God has designed the world and us this way. And not only that, it is also because this is a reflection of God himself is. Because if you think about it, the persons of the Holy Trinity also collaborate. They make plans, they assign roles and they execute projects. And the most epic project is, of course, the one, um, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. The members of the Holy Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal. There never was a time when any one of them did not exist. And there is also no hierarchy in the Trinity, just love, mutual service and harmony. But in their relationship to the world or to the creation, there is an agreed upon hierarchy in the Trinity. The Father sends the Son, and the Son obeys the Father, even to death on the cross. The Father and the Son together then send the Holy Spirit to empower the Church, to represent them in the world, and to extend his kingdom in history. And theologians, um, to describe this relationship of the Holy Trinity to the creation, they use the, the term economic. They refer to it as the economic trinity. When they talk about the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity within the Trinity, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they call this the ontological trinity. But when they speak of the relationship of the persons of the trinity to the world, as I said, they call this the economic trinity. So this finally brings me to my last point for beginning to understand what the Bible says about economics. God has created a harmony of interests between everything in his creation, between people and even between people and the animals and the natural environment. Sin, however, has turned a God-given harmony of interest into a conflict of interests. What do I mean by this? Well, many modern ideologies, especially since the Enlightenment, are founded on the idea of a conflict of interests. For example, Marxism. Marxism posits an unresolvable conflict between certain social classes. Another example might be extreme environmentalism which posits an unresolvable conflict between humans and the planet or humans and the natural environment. And if we think about it, there are probably lots of other examples that we can think of. Um, racism, for example, 
an inherent conflict between people with different skin colours um, is another example. However, instead of life being characterised by a conflict of interests, God has actually made us in such a way that we need to work together and grow together. And he's ordered things in such a way that wealth grows when we cooperate with and serve each other, but it shrinks when we fight and steal from each other. I observed an example of this when we lived in Africa. In the country where we lived, there was, an inter there was interracial strife that in the years just before Vrena and I arrived had spilled over into mass murder and ethnic cleansing. Um, and, and so our first years there were sort of in the aftermath of all of that as people were sort of coming to terms with it. Um, and as I got to know the place, I observed something in the marketplace near our office um, that, that sort of highlighted to me how God has created a harmony of interest rather than a conflict of interest. So there were two, um, the two main ethnic groups in that country that were always fighting. Actually, they were economically tied together. Um, and I saw this in a small way. Um, in one of the ethnic groups, the women um, sewed veils, women's clothing, from cotton muslin. But the tie-dyeing necessary to complete the garments was only done by the women of the other group. One group would do half the work, and then they would have to take it to the others to, to be finished. And so this was a cross-ethnic division of labour that, in God's, in God's plan, wisdom and providence was designed to be a blessing to both groups. But the groups were often fighting, and in the process they made themselves poorer on both sides. And again, if we look carefully, we might be able to see many examples of this kinds of thing. So God in his wisdom has placed a premium on collaboration, which sinful humans undo when they start wars and conflicts. So in summary, I think that's probably enough for one day. But if we just briefly recap, the reason we should take economics seriously is because there is a concrete economic dimension to the kingdom of God in that it rests on the principle of growth and expansion. As human beings made in God's image, part of our calling is to develop and improve the things that God has made. And beginning to grasp a biblical perspective on economics requires us to understand that God created the world and the universe out of nothing and has delegated it, the running of it to humans. God is the ultimate owner, which means he will hold us accountable for what we do. And he is actually the only one capable of rendering a correct judgment or evaluation of that use. One thing that God requires us to do is to grow and to multiply good things, including the economy. God's kingdom is always moving forward and growing, and so is human life. And sorry, and so human life, including the economy, should always also be growing, developing and diversifying. A key element of economic growth is division of labour, and an increasing division of labour reflects the fact of the, of the diversity of gifts and callings within the body of Christ. Finally, we saw how we should understand that God has created a harmony of interests, which we very quickly in our sinfulness turn into a conflict of interest. But when we understand that it is in our interest to cooperate with one another, to collaborate in projects, rather than to fight one another, everybody wins. There's a lot more to say on this subject. This is just the barest skimming of the surface of the very beginning. Thank you for your patience. I'm happy to chat about this uh, later. Amen.